Hi, you're listening to The Professional's Playbook, a podcast that brings transparency to top performers, careers, and topics. My name is Justin Hazard-Lee. I'm an F-35 fighter pilot for the Air Force. The goal of this podcast is to find experts who are at the top of their field to share their insights based on credibility and experience. My guest today is Safi Bacall, who is the author of Loon Shots, the most recommended book of the year. It came out in 2019 and has already been translated into 18 languages. It's recommended by Bill Gates, Daniel Kahneman, Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, and Tim Ferriss, and was selected as the best business book of the year by Amazon, Bloomberg, Business Insider, Financial Times, Forbes, Inc., Medium, and The Washington Post. Safi is a physicist, a biotech entrepreneur, and a former public company CEO. In 2008, he was named ENY New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on the future of national research. Safi regularly speaks with leadership teams about applying the ideas in Loon Shots and has presented at leading institutions around the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the fighter pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all their watches by going to bremont.com. Now here's a highlight from our conversation today. So now it's flipped. Those two forces are exactly the opposite. At a 10-person company, your stake and outcome is huge and perks of rank are nothing. At this 100,000-person organization, it's exactly the opposite. Stakes and outcome are tiny, but perks of rank are really big. And that's a phase transition, just like in that glass of water. And that's when a group or a team or a company switches from this fluid, liquid, wildly innovative state to this solid, rigid, ice-like state where they shoot down new ideas. In our conversation, we talk about his thoughts on the coronavirus separating artists from soldiers and organizations, the role of incentives, and then at the end, he interviews me for a few minutes. I highly recommend his book, Loon Shots. The subchapter, The Invisible Axe, has, in my opinion, the single greatest page and a half of nonfiction writing, where he talks about the incentive structure of middle managers and why they are predisposed to reject innovative ideas. If you want to keep up with me, you can follow along at Justin Fighter Pilot on Instagram or Justin Hazard Lee on LinkedIn. I also send out a monthly newsletter. You can find that at professionalsplaybook.com. And now, without further ado, Safi Bacall. Safi, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Justin, thanks for having me. So I wanted to kind of get your uh, get your view on what's going on in this this crazy time right now with the uh, the coronavirus. How's how's your time been in the uh, the post coronavirus lockdown? I think it's it's probably a very similar experience to everybody. This is it's, it's amazing. It's a crazy times. It's unprecedented. I don't think we've seen anything like this as a country probably since World War II. In 80 years, since people coming together on the science side, people mobilizing across the nation in a way that's never happened since World War II. Um, before that, maybe the, the first World War, where you're facing a common enemy and you're trying to figure out what you can do. There's an existential threat. 
and there's a sense of urgency and there's a sense of everybody rolling up their sleeves and there's a sense of everybody wanting to pitch in and help out, which is also lives in parallel with everyone being understandably anxious and nervous and unclear about what to do and dealing with their internal stuff as well as their external stuff. So it's uh, crazy times. But I, you know, I would say one of the things that I get to see having been in the biomedical world and in the research world and having some perspective on that is reasons for being optimistic. If you just stick to sort of Twitter feeds, or news feeds or all that stuff, you can very easily drive yourself nuts and get really anxious and depressed with all the tracking the news flow. And I have to stop myself sometimes when I'm doing that because I it's right. pretty easy to fall into that trap. How many cases here? How many cases there? And so on. It doesn't really help you in any way, uh, but there's something sort of contagious or addictive about that anxiety. But what's I think helps me and I, you know, I get a lot of calls about this now and I'm on these, you know, innovation crisis teams and helping with a couple companies that I work with and is just to see the context, the level of mobilization of scientists and researchers in the biomedical world to develop uh, new drugs or repurpose existing drugs to develop or repurpose equipment is unbelievable. It's just incredible. You know, it's, it's hard to appreciate if you haven't been in this field. There's something like 300 trials, 300 clinical trials that got registered for maybe 80 or 90 drugs and interventions in, a, in maybe eight weeks. You know, normally it can take a couple of years, you know, from an idea to actually starting a clinical trial in patients. You had a couple hundred trials in eight weeks. It's it's astounding. And what gives me some optimism, and it, you know, I understand why it's hard to see if you're not in the middle of this or don't have the context, is that a few years ago, we had a group of scientists mobilized around hepatitis, hepatitis C, which had been around for quite a while, another very difficult bug, caused very severe liver damage and led to death, um, chronic medical problems. And they developed a good drug, which generally against infectious disease, you need a combination. When it was HIV, there was combination therapy. Against tuberculosis, there's combination therapy. And we won those battles. We essentially cured or at least made chronic HIV. Same thing with tuberculosis because of a couple of you know important medical breakthroughs generally in combination, never just one magic bullet. You have to use mm -hmm. Army, Air Force, and Navy to take down the enemy. You can't just go in with one, one, one plan of attack. You need several things at once, and that will kill a really bad bug. The level that we have today mobilized against this one bug, maybe a 100, maybe a 1,000 times more than the level we had three years ago against hepatitis C. And we cured that disease. So I actually have a lot of reasons for feeling optimistic on the, you know, number one, the progress that we're seeing in the biomedical side. And, the, you know, there's two things, to two very different kinds of 
treatments. One is a vaccine, which is for prevention. The other is an antiviral, which is actually kills the virus once you have it. The one, the vaccine, will take a year, maybe actually a little bit faster. could be ready for healthcare workers frontline in the fall. But the antivirals will have data on within weeks because those are already in large clinical trials, hundreds of patients, and those started six or eight weeks ago, and they're very fast trials because you're, you know, in a vaccine, you're looking for, oh, is there any, you know, you have to give it to 10,000 people to see if there's a small safety problem or if it's really working the way you're supposed to, the way it's supposed to, but with an antiviral drug, which kills the virus, you give it you know, 50 people, and you measure their viral load before and after, and you have a pretty good sense of where it's working. So it's pretty mm-hmm. fast. So it's, in, it's incredible to see the, what we can do when the gloves come off, when we take off some of the, uh, the bureaucracy and, and the politics out of it. Yeah, it's, 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 I know it's hard to see if you're not in the middle of this thing, but you know, I've been in biomedical research for 15 or 20 years, and there's a process you go through for a new drug. You, know, you might have an idea, and then you do years, a couple years of early experiments to show that there's evidence of concept that it could be effective and has some reasonable safety profile. Then you apply to the FDA for permission to give it to humans, which for very good reason is a very thorough process. You don't want to be injecting somebody with something that is unsafe uh, or you haven't studied well. So that you know could take about a year. And then you begin the trials, and there's a year, a year and a half of early safety studies just to start off at very low doses and measure and make sure you're not causing harm. And then proof of concept studies, which is another two years. And then the large definitive phase three studies, which is you know another two or three years for most drugs. So from start to finish, you're looking at five years in the lab and six to seven years in clinical trials. It's a 10 or 12-year process. Right. We're, we might be doing that in you know months. It's unbelievable. But you can already tell right at the beginning that the pace is so much faster and there's so many more resources, so many more resources. Everybody rolling up their sleeves across industry, across uh, nonprofit groups, across patient groups, across philanthropic groups, across venture capital or financial groups. And just every day over and over seeing this sort of progress. I talked about the drugs, the two different types, the vaccines and the antivirals, but there's also the hospital equipment. There's both the ventilators that you need when people get critically ill and the uh, protective equipment that you need. But just in the last couple of days, that's been ramped up. Uh, You know, we've gone from a massive shortage to a couple of companies like... uh, Roche and 3M being ready to produce millions of masks and healthcare worker protective equipment and gearing up on ventilators. So in any case, the long and the short of it is, uh, you know, I absolutely understand and share the sort of general anxiety and uncertainty that's a response to change of, you know, working surrounded by kids and pets, (laughs) you know, for the first time for many people. The uncertainty and anxiety for people who don't have the resources, who are suddenly out of jobs and don't have the cash and don't know where it's going to come from. But one thing that makes me optimistic 
is when I look around and I see what's coming and what may come within even a matter of weeks on clinical trial data from very experienced, very professional organizations. Yeah, it's incredible to see. It kind of reminds me of being in combat where normally everybody's kind of worried about their own little island, but in combat or now we're fighting a, a virus, everybody kind of rolls up their sleeves and, and is doing what they can to to help. So it's pretty pretty cool to see. Are there any other misconceptions that you see with your extensive uh, background in the biotech industry based on what the public is thinking or what the media is portraying? You know, I think for the most part, the, the credible news organizations are pretty accurate and providing pretty helpful information. I think there's a, a little bit of an obsessive focus on number of cases because that's a number and sort of numbers are easy to think about and measure. And I think that could be misleading because you're going to see these numbers of cases grow incredibly fast. And here in the U.S., that's being driven by the fact that we weren't testing before and now we're testing. And there'll be lots and lots of people who will be found to be positive and that's normal. You know, this is a virus. There's, you know, a third or half the countries infected with, you know, common cold and flu viruses, which are, of course, much less fatal. But that's kind of normal for a virus. Um, so I think one thing to keep in mind is when these numbers go up mm -hmm. of number of positives, it's not something to panic about. It's basically exactly what you expect when you start to test, because there are lots of people who have no symptoms who are, you know, running around. I think one thing that is some of the more credible organizations are talking about and pointing out correctly is there is a problem when you combine the nature of this disease and what you need to do to get it under control, which is sort of physical distancing, with the sort of normal belief of people in their teenage years that they're invulnerable. And they're like, well, screw and, and the normal desire of people mm -hmm. in their teenage years or early 20s or whatever to just stick their thumb to authority and just say, well, I'm going to not do this or not do that. And it's not, that's really a danger because you want to buy time. These drugs are coming. Our medical system is will be getting better and better prepared every single day as we buy a time. It won't help. We don't want to have happen what happened in Italy, where people were somewhat spreading it out of control, and then you're just leaving people in hallways to die. Triage, like in Battlefield, you're just making life-death decisions, and these people will die because their lungs are being yeah. flooded with the reaction to the virus, and so their airways are being choked off and their immune system is going out of control and then their organs fail and then they die. The challenge is to balance sort of mm -hmm. the, the younger generation's desire to be anti-authority and just say, ah, whatever, it's not real, with what really what is real and what needs to get done to buy time so we can save some lives. Right. Well, as much as... I want to keep talking about coronavirus. I, you've had an amazing career and written an incredible book as well. So I'd like to focus and transition a little bit to to your career. It looked like you initially started off in the physics world. What drew you? What drew you there? 
Well, my uh, both my parents were scientists. They were both actually astrophysicists. I know you mentioned you had some astronauts on your show. So uh, my father was actually very closely involved with NASA. He was one of the two people who really got the Hubble Space Telescope built. And as a result, we ended up going and seeing some launches of the space shuttle over the years, including both the, the original shuttle launch many years ago and um, the space telescope launch many years ago and some of the rescue missions and got to be friends with some astronauts over the years. But I grew up with the idea that the search for truth was something that matters, is important, is satisfying, and is fun. And that's what I saw my parents doing mm -hmm. every day for their careers. And my mom is still alive, fortunately, and still doing that in Princeton, New Jersey. And, you know, that it imprinted on me, trying to figure out how things work and understand how they work and why they work and what you can do with that and helping people understand that and communicating that is fun. And it's like being a professional detective, except instead of solving mysteries of who killed you know, A or B, you're solving mysteries about how oh, the world works in this really strange way. How can we understand that? What's behind that? Yeah. What are some fundamental things, you know, when we peel the onion, like if you think of it as this kind of complex clock, can we, can we kind of take it apart and see what makes it tick? And that's kind of how I've approached the world. And it, it sort of makes it fun. It makes it fun to go through life saying, Really, I, that's kind of a fascinating reaction or a fascinating thing that happened. I kind of wonder what's, is there an underlying explanation for that? You know, in Moonshots, is about why is, mm -hmm. do companies suddenly change? Organizations suddenly change. Groups that were wildly innovative and loved doing new stuff suddenly seem to stop doing that. They liked great ideas and then they suddenly, you know, change. They suddenly start shooting the same people that are sort of independently love great ideas, suddenly start to shoot them down. You know, I give the example of uh, Nokia, where, you know, they went from a company that was known for 20, 30, 40 years, mostly for rubber boots and toilet paper, a pretty boring manufacturing company. Over the course of 10, 15 years, they became the number one telecom company, mobile phone company, smartphone company in the world. They were the most valuable company in Europe. They were the Apple of their day. Everybody, they had a one out of every two smartphones on the planet was a Nokia phone. You know, when I go around and give talks to large crowds, I sometimes pause and ask, you know, how many of you ever had a Nokia phone? Maybe 80 or 90% of the hands go up. Mm -hmm. I sure do. Right? It, it was a much greater market share than Apple has today even with iPhone. And then these two, you know, this group of engineers came up with this crazy idea. This was in early 2000s when they were, you know, the king, uh, top of the hill, top of the mountain. And a group of engineers came up with this idea, hey, let's build this a new kind of phone. It was around 2004. They said, let's put this big, beautiful screen and this awesome camera on the top of it, and we're going to make it a touch screen. It's going to be really great. People can, like press stuff with their fingers. And here's the real kicker. We're going to have a store in the cloud and people can buy these things. We're going to call them applications. And they can buy them and they can download them directly off the internet straight into their phone with no computer in between. And they can customize their phone and you know we'll have the store. So the same group 
that had built Nokia into this awesome company started shot down those ideas. Until three years later, that group of engineers watched from a distance as their ideas came to life in a stage in San Francisco when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. And then a few years later, Nokia was irrelevant. It went from you know, owning half the market to a couple percent. And it went from, and then a few years after that, it was sold. The entire business, which was a $300 billion company, the mobile business was sold to Microsoft for $13 billion. So that's a loss of a quarter trillion dollars. So why is it that good teams will kill great ideas? So that's, you know, you asked sort of how I got started. It was all this sort of, why does this stuff happen? It's like a little clock that's ticking and can we open up and see what's making it work? Why do the, you know, groups and teams and companies and organizations suddenly change? And so over the last year, something that I didn't expect when I wrote the book was so many in the U.S. military and national security organizations, national intelligence organizations have reached out. Why? Because they're full of people at the top, at the middle, at the lowest ranks who want great new ideas to come to life. I'll give you an example. A few months ago, I was standing on a nuclear submarine with uh, an admiral who was responsible for transforming the Navy for the 21st century. So all of these places, kind of the question is the same. It's how do you balance that core with the new? So a company that might be, you know, your Google, and so you've got this search thing that's great for search text, or or you've been de- developing a certain kind of product or program, and that franchise has grown. Well, how do you balance, like Nokia had this mobile phone business. So how do you balance that with the new, the something that's really kind of different? And in the case of a company, that's a matter of P&L. But if you're on a profit and loss, but if you're on a nuclear submarine, hundreds of miles from shore, deep underwater, you don't want to start hearing clanking noises from your nuclear engine. That's your core. At the same time, you don't want to start, be surprised by a new kind of torpedo. That's the new. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the core and the new? And for companies, that's a matter of P&L, but for the military and national security and even hospitals, it's a matter of life and death. So, you know, one of the things that's been really sort of fascinating for me is how many folks in the national security, as well as hospitals and others, have reached out in addition to you know tech companies and media companies and film studios and auto companies and you know manufacturing companies how many have reached out about essentially the same question you know why is it that good teams kill great ideas and how do we balance the core and the new yeah we've absolutely had that issue on the F35 the F35 being the newest fighter in the air force inventory i think people don't appreciate the technological s curve how it takes a while for new technology to become better than the technology it's replacing. Just like the CD player to the MP3 player, just like the MP3 player to the iPhone. But same with the F35 in that when it first came out, it had a lot of bugs and it was not as good as the fortune fighters that it was replacing. But then last year, we finally got the 
full combat software. And overnight, the jet got much better. But it's taken a long time. And I feel like even amongst pilots, it's taken a long time for them to buy into this program and say, the jet is not as good as the competitors right now, but in five years, it's going to be much better. Yeah, you know, that that's why I um, wrote it when I was doing the research for this book. It's it's why I ended up using the word or inventing the word loon shots, because so many of the really important ideas don't arrive, you know, with these blaring trumpets and red carpets, you know, dazzling everybody with their incredible brilliance or performance. They're kind of dismissed or often neglected, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, because it's so easy to write them off, because anything new is like a little baby. And in fact, that's, that's how I sometimes talk about the ultimate problem and why it is so difficult inside companies. I call it the beautiful baby problem. You have the folks who are working on something new and they see their creation the thing that they've designed or the thing that they've invented. And it could be, you know, if you're an engineer, computer engineer, it could be this awesome new algorithm for doing something. If you're designing a product like a coffee machine, it could be this beautiful new feature or beautiful new aesthetic style. And you see that as this fantastic creation, this fantastic invention full of potential. It's a beautiful baby. The folks who are working on the core, the soldiers who are working on the core, who are doing an equally important job of continuing to deliver, see that beautiful baby as a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. And that's the essence of it. You have the beautiful baby, you have the vomit and poop. And that's how it is. That's how it always is with the new thing. It's always the case that you will have the beautiful, the folks who see it as a beautiful baby and the folks who just see it as a raisin with poop and vomit. And that's what you want. The mistake is that, oh, no, you've got to have the artists focusing on their risks and managing them. And you have to have the soldiers really welcoming and embracing high risk. Well, no, you actually want exactly that tension. You want one group that's incredibly excited about the potential of their new thing. And you want another group. It's completely focused on how do we turn that thing into something we can deliver on time, on budget, on spec consistently to customers. Otherwise, you don't have a business. Otherwise, you know, if you're telling this one group that's focused on, you know, like liquid and creative and flowing, and you're telling this other group that's focused on, all right, here's the timelines, here's the budgets, here's what customers need, here's when they need it. That's kind of the solid, rigid approach. If you're telling the solid, ice guys to be liquid and the liquid folks to be ice, you're just going to get slush. You're going to get like a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. You're just going to get this mushy thing. You need both and you need to manage the balance of that tension. And if you don't have that tension inside a team or a company of people a little bit irritated with each other, here's my beautiful baby. Well, look at that, all those flaws. Well, what are you talking about? If you don't have that tension, you actually have a bigger problem. If you don't have that tension, that may mean your creatives aren't taking enough risks. Your creatives aren't pushing the boundary. Because if they aren't developing things with, with flaws, if they aren't failing, then they're probably not taking enough risk. You want your artists, your creatives working on the thing that's going to fail nine times. Because that tenth thing 
is the one that's going to change the world, your industry or your business, or if you're in the military, it's going to be the one that gives you a, a crucial advantage. And the reason you want to be doing that is that if your guys who are working on that aren't taking those risks, well, then your competitor is, or your enemy is. And if they are, and when they are, they're the ones who are going to be finding that 10th thing. And they will discover it, and you will see it only too late when it's a bullet coming to your head. So that's why you want your folks focused on this taking risk. You want one group that's focused on taking risk, and the other group is the exact opposite, minimizing risk. Right? Let's say if you're in a company, you don't want to have a sales guy knocking on somebody's door and say, here's your toaster. Thank you, sir. And he said, toaster, I ordered a television. You know, that if you keep doing, if your group that you want to deliver on time, on budget is not doing that job, you're going to have a very big problem. And I'll give you an example. Actually, I often use this example. Let's say you're, you're in the Air Force and your job is to, you know, manufacture planes. You want to minimize risk. Now, if you're working on wild new ideas, you want to, you know, try 10 things, nine of which fail. But if you're making planes, you don't want to go to your general and say, here's my strategy. Let's put 10 planes in the sky and see which nine fall down. <laughs> we'll keep that last 10th one. How about that? Does that sound good? Obviously not. No, you want those things on time, on budget, on spec. So you need two different things. One group that's trying to maximize risk and experiment and the other group that's trying to get things done on time, on budget, on spec, on protocol. Said, so I manage a nuclear silo. You know, you're absolutely right. I don't want my guys experimenting with which buttons to press. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, that's, well, that's very reassuring that we're learning. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you don't want your guys managing a nuclear silo to take be trying to figure out which buttons to press might be a good idea. So that's a little bit of some of the, the gist of it is if you're inside a team or thinking of building a team or you're already managing a team or leading a team, You've got to understand that your job isn't to just yell at everybody, hey, everybody, let's innovate faster or better. Your job is to make sure you have these two different things going on at the same time. And your job is to manage the tension. It isn't to erase the tension. It's to manage it. It's like you have two kids and you've got to understand your job is to help them help each other. Right? I'll give you an example. When Steve Jobs led Apple, the first time he did it, when he was a younger guy, he did it exactly the opposite of what you want to do. So they built the Apple II, and it was one of the early personal computers, and it was kind of a big hit in the beginning. But within 24 months, there were a lot of other companies making personal computers. There was Radio Shack with their TRS-80, and there was the Commodore Pet, all of which started to do better than Apple. And then IBM came in and actually made a great personal computer took over the market, just wiped everybody else away. And Apple started to rapidly head to just a few percent market share. It was rapidly facing pretty serious problems. And they knew they needed the next computer, the franchise Apple III or whatever. And Jobs was assigned that to lead that, and he didn't do a very good job. So they eventually gave him this other project in the corner called the Macintosh Project, which he took over. And there was a guy named Jeff Raskin who had come up with the idea with this Macintosh project and a Windows, you know, kind of a Windows user interface. 
So Jobs took it over, got rid of Jeff Raskin, said, this is my project. And then he announced everybody who's working on this thing is a true artist, true pirate. And all the rest of you are bozos working on the franchise. And what happened? Well, the group working on the next generation, Apple III and the lease and all that stuff, which was making 95% of the revenue of the company, well, they took to wearing plastic buttons with pictures of Bozo the Clown and a red circle Mm -hmm. and a sash saying we're not bozos. And the hostility between their two buildings got to be so big that the street between the two buildings was known as the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. (laughs) And people started leaving. And when they did, things really started to head downhill. And when the Macintosh launched in 1984, it was this great publicity campaign, but the product launch itself was kind of a flop. Because the product didn't work well, it overheated, it was too expensive, it was too slow, it didn't have enough storage. So people didn't want to buy it. So they thought it was cool, but that was that. And Apple was rapidly headed for bankruptcy. When he came back, 12 years later, Jobs had learned to kind of love his artists and his soldiers equally. He promoted this guy named Johnny Ive, who was this great designer. And if you have an Apple product, it was probably designed by Johnny Ive's group. But he also hired this guy from Compaq uh, Computer, who had been their head of inventory, head of operations. And his name was Tim Cook. And he had been given the nickname Attila the Hun of the Inventory. So if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. And so Jobs led by managing the tension between these two. He found the two best people he could at those two completely different jobs and didn't favor A or B. So when the iPad came out, it was a beautiful design from Johnny Ives' group. But if it wasn't for Tim Cook that got the cost from down from $6,000 to $600, there'd be no Apple today. So you need both. And when Jobs died and Jobs saw himself as a sort of ultimate artist, you know, who took over? Was it the next ultimate artist? No, it was kind of the ultimate soldier. So the trick is to understand that you need both. You need to love both equally. And if you're human, that's not easy because you have some inclination. You might be predisposed to love the wild, crazy new stuff. Mm-hmm. Or you might be predisposed to just really love timelines and budget and discipline and on time. And you got to remember, those are two opposite things. One group is trying to maximize risk and trying to fail and should be failing. And the other group is trying to minimize that. So your job is to do both. Your job is to manage both jobs, both tasks, and to give them equal love. And that's very challenging if you're have a predisposition to one or the other. And you have to, part of that is just becoming self-aware, becoming aware of your tendencies. And in small groups, you can't really separate that role by person. You really have to separate that role in time. So you have to make sure your time is balanced, that you're devoting enough time to the wild, crazy new stuff and equally to delivering on time, on budget, on spec. And you're not confusing those two jobs and confusing people. If you're a solo entrepreneur, you've got to manage your time. You've got to say, on some stuff, I'm just delivering what needs to get done on time, on budget, and other stuff, I'm coming up with really wacky new things for the next project. And so you've got to understand how to balance both of those, how to wear different hats, how to encourage both of those at the same time. In the military, 
I think it's been recognized for a long time. The military struggles with that. And I, I would say it's not just the military. It's, it's any organization that's mission-driven. And the military is mission-driven. The national intelligence agencies I talk to, it's about mission. It's not about money. And hospital workers that I talk to, it's about mission. It's not about money. In those cases, the advantages and the disadvantages are the same. The advantage is that lives are at stake. That's your mission. Safety is at stake. And because of that, it's easier to motivate people around important causes. The disadvantage is that lives are at stake. And because of that, there's a long legacy of trying to minimize risk. If you're at a hospital, there's a long legacy of any deviation could lead to death. You don't want to treat somebody at 100 units when it said 10 units. Mm-hmm. If you're in the military, you don't want to be experimenting with parachutes. Oh, let's just try a couple of things, see which work. There's a good reason that you need tight control and tight discipline and hierarchies if you're directing millions of soldiers in battle or trying to build tens of thousands of ships or guns in a matter of months. And you need that. So what you have to understand, the advantages there and the disadvantages are the same. It's easier to motivate people around a big mission. But you have to understand that there is this inherent legacy for minimizing risk. Whereas if you want something new and want to stay ahead of your competitors, stay ahead of your enemies, stay ahead of your rivals, you need to take risk. And those are two conflicting things. As an organization, you need to balance that. And I think that's what the U.S. military is working very hard now on because the world has changed in the last five or 10 years in ways that are very different in terms of what is going to make a difference for battlefield advantage in the future. For the last hundred years or so, most of the time when we've started wars, we've started in one way or another behind our enemies in certain technologies or strategies. In World War II, we were well behind Nazi Germany in the U-boat technology, which was a critical threat that almost defeated the Allies. In aircraft, at the start of the war, uh, when they used Luftwaffe to essentially take over Western Europe within days, but also in jet aircraft, which they developed well before. They were first to develop. Uh, And then in nuclear fission, which two German scientists discovered. So they led in critical science and technology, but we caught up in time. And in all of the battles and wars that we've faced over the last, pretty much the last century, we've had the opportunity to catch up in time. And sometimes it was just in time, as in the case of World War II, where England was essentially running out of oil uh, because of the U-boat threat, had three months of oil left before some of the technologies we developed, including microwave radar, helped turn the course of that, of the Battle of the Atlantic. So in most cases, we caught up in time, but what's happened in the last five or 10 years is that the source of advantage is shifting from hardware to software. So for the last century, sources of battlefield advantage have been hardware technology breakthroughs, whether it was bigger guns or whether it was jet engines or whether it was microwave radar, eventually nuclear uh, fission. Those are all advances in hardware. And advances in hardware technologies 
it takes some time. And that's why our enemies were unable to, our rivals were unable to match us once we were able to develop the radar, other weapons. But software is much faster. Mm-hmm. Innovation in software, you know, can happen uh, 10 times, 100 times faster than in hardware, specifically with AI and machine learning. And where we are today is at a pretty dangerous place in terms of separate from the coronavirus. But um, what I was talking with quite a few folks about a few months ago was how the nature of national security threat and national defense strategy of the United States has shifted from non-state actors, which is what it was the previous 10 years, to what are called near-peer threats, China and Russia. Because we're no longer in the situation for some of these critical technologies like AI and machine learning, where we're just, our infrastructure and our science and our technology is just head and shoulders above our rivals. China and Russia are peers or near peers in those capabilities. And that's a very serious threat because they've already been deploying them in battlefield, uh, in the case of China, in their home population. And so it's been taken very seriously, from what I can see it, all the way through uh, the top levels of national security organizations, as you can see in the public documents and national defense strategy documents, which is filtered down into the different services and their strategies. That's the focus in terms of our strategy, our national defense strategy, in which case the pace of innovation is unlike anything that we've seen in the last century. And that's why the military is, and the national security organizations are increasingly thinking through how do we increase the pace of innovation and the scale of innovation? Because it's changing much faster today than it ever did in the past hundred years. Yeah, I know in the Air Force, it's been a drastic push to to change the way that we innovate. And so we're trying to revamp these, like, like you said, 50, 75-year-old processes to be able to keep up with the, the rapid change of pace. One question I had, though, in terms of separating the artists and soldiers, as you put it, the artists who are doing the R&D, who are kind of out there uh, coming up with loon shots with the soldiers who are doing the day-to-day processes that need to help out an organization. From a CEO perspective or from a general perspective, you want to separate these two. But if you happen to be a middle manager, what are some tactics that you can use if you're, say, a squadron commander in charge of 30 people to be able to to do this when you don't have the authority organizationally to separate the two. Right. So when you're a smaller group, and I work with actually a lot of companies and organizations, you want to appoint a person who's, if it's not you, then appoint somebody who's going to be the team captain. It doesn't have to be a captain, but someone who is a point person who's in charge of managing the time. If you can't create and separate those roles by person, You want to create and separate those roles in time. In other words, say, listen, everybody's got a job. You know, you're on plane duty, you're on munitions duty, you've got your core franchise job. If you're on a nuclear submarine, it's making sure that nuclear engine is running well. Whatever the core franchise is, that's your day job. That may be, we're going to call that, let's say, 80% of your job. And then we're going to have a time, whether it's 
one day a week or two or three day period every month or every quarter where you're going to take off your no risk hat and everything's on time on a budget hat. And you're actually going to think about the most wild creating and have a small team that comes together and say, what are the loon shots out there? What are the crazy ideas that we want to explore? Whether they're in, it doesn't have to be very far off from what you're working on. It could be a small tweak. I read about in the Navy where, you know, the small group said, you know, instead of this, some giant fancy new technology for operating periscopes, why don't we use Xbox controllers that we can get for 30 bucks? And you know what the advantage is? Everybody, every, you know, young 20 something year old knows how to use that. And then we'll just soup them up a little bit. It'll cost us like a hundredth the price of what we were going to do. And it'll get adopted faster, which will give us an edge. So you want to separate if you're a middle manager, if you don't, if you're not the CEO or the general, you want to create a process and a structure for your team or your unit to do both, to balance both. And you do that by being very clear, very directive about time. Here is the box of time that we are going to quarantine. And it's like everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Every wild, crazy idea that you come up with in this box of time is good, is fine. Nobody's going to laugh at you. Nobody's going to criticize you. Nobody's going to jump on you. Nobody's going to hold it against you because that's what we need to do. If we as a group, as a team, as a unit, want to innovate, want to stay ahead of our competitors and not be surprised on the battlefield, we need to be crazy. We need to take risk. We need to try stuff that is going to fail. Otherwise, our enemies, our rivals will be doing that. And then it'll, it'll be too late. So here's a quarantined block of the week or block of the month where your mission is to think of the hunt, you and your team, to think of the hundredest, craziest loon shots that we could use to improve or our enemy could be using against us. And once we think of those, we're going to prioritize them. You know, I'm going to you know, want to be systematic about it. You don't just think about what's a better washing machine. That's not very strategically important. You want to prioritize. Here's you know, our three top strategic focus areas where we really want to improve. And now let's get 50 ideas in each of these three buckets from wherever we're going to get ideas. And there are a lot of different ways to go about doing that. And then we're going to pick the top two in each of those three categories. And at the end of the day, everybody, you know, you may not agree, not every person unanimously agrees those are the top ones, but you agree to disagree and you commit. These are the things we're going to pursue. Then you take off your wild artist creative hat. You shut down that crazy imagination moment and you focus on getting those things done. So what you do is now you're balancing your artist time and your soldier time rather than your artist person and your soldier person. And that's what you can do if you're a team manager. That makes sense. So that's more like a brainstorming session. And you can do this all the way to just yourself. You can designate an hour of your day to coming up with loon shots. Yeah, and it works much better because, you know, like uh, I have a, a crazy artist at and then a soldier hat. And then you know what you're doing. You know, you're, you know what your goal is. And as you know, once you are pretty clear about your goal, you'll figure out ways to get there. If your goal is to come up with 10, 20, 50 pretty wacky ideas, 
you'll get there. You relax that inner critic or the external critic or the fear of saying something stupid or saying something silly and you create specifically a goal where it's okay to fail and it's okay to be stupid and it's okay to say silly things and it's okay for everybody in that quarantine time zone. That's what makes it work is you quarantine that zone and you say, in that time zone, we're going to be as wacky as possible and it's safe. Everybody's going to do it. And we're just going to build on what, and we'll see. And you know what? A hundred things will come up and 98 of them we won't do. And that's okay. The two things that we're going to do, that could be really interesting. If you don't do that, then you're just focused on, you know, on time, on budget, 10, 12 hours a day, every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. And that's when you stagnate. So, If, on the other hand, you do create that balance, it mixes things up. It energizes your people. It energizes your team. It injects fresh ideas. And the first things may not work, but that's okay. And you want to give them permission to fail because you understand that the stuff that comes out of that quarantine box is supposed to fail. That's you doing your job. If it's not failing, you're not doing your job because somebody else who is trying a bunch of crazy stuff and failing is going to discover that that hidden piece of gold that's behind all these little failure mountains. And it's just hiding there, waiting, waiting for somebody that's willing to cross those mountains and track it down. Yeah. And I love how you tied this into incentives because I think a common misconception is people think these big organizations, all the little workers in here, optimize for the the greater cause. But I loved how you talked to stake versus status, which is something that's been kind of, I've been thinking about the last, uh, probably the last 10 years. I, I just couldn't think of it as eloquently as that. And then I think you have the single best page and a half in nonfiction writing, uh, page 191 for people that that want to follow along. I promise this isn't a paid advertisement, but where you go through the incentive structure of a middle manager when a loon shot comes across their desk. Can you elaborate on that? You know, you, did you reference page 191? It may be a surprise, uh, I but I don't know what page 191 is, but conveniently I have <laughs> I have a book here. So let me find... I actually woke to, my wife up to, to read that. She was not happy about that, but I, I it's just something I've been looking for for a long time. Did you say 191? 191. It's where you're talking about... A middle manager, a loon shot comes across their desk and they have option one. You can make the case and begin the long slog up the ladder of committee after committee, pounding the table. Or B, you can belittle it and show what you know and that your knowledge aligns with with your boss. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I often give that, give that example and it works works pretty well uh, you know, in, in larger crowds. But it, you know, it resonates because that's it's really the case. So the example is this. So you mentioned that there are these two forces. And so we started this talking a little bit about how does physics come into any of this? So this is a little bit of a mind trip. And I think one of the reasons I had a lot of fun doing this book, and now I've heard you know, from a lot of people, that's why it's resonated and being read at all these levels, is that it's not just a typical pop psychology thing. I read this in the psychology magazine and, you know, so everybody should be nice. Or, you know, I read a survey of how many CEOs drink orange juice and, you know, you should drink orange juice or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff that you get a lot of in in the business world. And, you know, if you've been in business for a long time and 
you get a little tired of that kind of thing. There's sort of a first principle science. And this was the to come back to what we started with, you know, how I grew up with my parents, which was really how did things tick? Let's think of it as like this really fascinating clock. And can we open up and see what's working on? What's going on? Why? And a mystery, like why do good teams kill great ideas? And behind that is the fact that there are these two forces. Big systems will suddenly change. Water, which is just molecules of ice, molecules of water just flowing around, loosey-goosey. When you lower the temperature at 32 Fahrenheit, they will completely change behavior. Those water molecules will line up totally rigid. You can't stick your finger in anymore. It becomes rigid ice. So why? You know, there's no CEO molecules saying, hey, everybody be really loose at 33 Fahrenheit. No, it's 31. Everybody line up. They just do it. Why? Why is that the case? How does that work? Anytime you see a change in a large system like that, like water going to ice or in traffic flow on highways, it's another example. Everybody's just cruising along and all of a sudden there's a traffic jam. It's because there's two competing forces and something about the balance of those forces shift. There's a tug of war. They're pulling in different directions. And for most times, one side wins. And then as you change, all of a sudden, at a critical temperature, whoops, the other side wins. So in the case of a glass of water, there are these two forces. One is called entropy, which is just a fancy word, means run around and be free. And that's winning at high temperatures. The other force is called binding energy that wants to lock every molecule rigidly in place. And I'll get to what that has to do with companies and teams because there's two forces there. But it's easiest to visualize in a glass of water. Where acting inside every molecule is these two forces. Run around and be free. Nope. Binding energy wants to lock you 2.8 angstroms from your neighbor, not 2.7 or 2.9. And at high temperature, that entropy, run around and be free, wins. And then as you lower the temperature, right at 32 Fahrenheit, the tug of war switches sides. And binding energy wins. And boom, they lock down, completely rigid. And that's called in science a phase transition. That's when a system suddenly snaps. And it goes from totally loose to completely rigid. And so that sounds, well, what does that possibly have to do with the team or company? I mean, that sounds crazy. You know, molecules are just molecules in a glass of water. But every team is different. Every person is different. Every company is different. And that's, that's true. But so is every liquid. Water is different than coffee, is different than orange juice, is different than methane. But they all freeze. And so that's the case with teams and companies too. Even though they're all different, they have these same two forces. And once you understand those forces, you can understand that transition and more importantly, you can begin to manage it. So in the case of a company, it was as you were mentioning, you have these two forces, which is stake and outcome, and perks of rank. Anytime you organize people into a group where there's some kind of mission and some kind of incentive, some kind of reward tied to that mission, you have just created two competing forces. One is stake and outcome. So for example, if you're a 10-person biotech company working on new cancer drug, your stake and outcome is huge. If that drug works, everybody's a hero and a millionaire. And if it fails, everybody's unemployed. Stake and outcome is huge. Well, what about perks of rank? 
Well, sure, there's, you know, somebody is the team captain or the CEO or the VP and someone is a team member. But so what? You know, the difference there is a few thousand dollars. If that little project works, everybody's stake and outcome is so big that it totally dwarfs all that perks of rank stuff. Now imagine flipping that equation. Now you're a 100,000 person organization and somebody comes in with a new project and you're sitting around the committee table. Well, what's your staking outcome? Well, that new drug, you know, might sell 50 million a year or 100 million a year. That sounds big, but you know what? Your company's sales are 50 billion. So your staking outcome is like a fraction of a percent. On the other hand, since everything's this sort of beautiful baby and vomit and poop, it's got good stuff, it's got bad stuff, it's got potential, it's got flaws, you can start pointing out, well, you know, I think uh, when they were doing that experiment on page 16 of their PowerPoint, they really didn't put the right parameters, and I think they left out this thing, and I think they missed that thing. And, you know, I, I was at this conference, and uh, I was talking to this guy who was giving the keynote talk, and he's a Nobel laureate, and we ended up going out for drinks, I'm just saying, we became kind of pals. And he thinks the industry is really headed in this direction. You know, and they're developing this project in this totally other way. And your boss is listening to this. She's at the table. And your boss is like, wait a minute. On page 16, they didn't do that. You're right. Oh, oh, and on page 43, they forgot to do this other experiment. And you know what? What you said about the industry headed in that direction total coincidence that's exactly what i think and you just said that what your boss thinks about where the future is headed and her boss is at the table and that's what she's thinking too yeah the industry really isn't headed there and these guys didn't do these things that young fellow they're now going to say that young fellow's really got a head on his shoulders and what might happen you might get promoted and if you get promoted you get let's say a 30 percent bump in pay and more prestige and more respect from all your friends so now it's flipped those two forces are exactly the opposite. At a 10-person company, your stake and outcome is huge and perks of rank are nothing. At this 100,000-person organization, it's exactly the opposite. Stakes and outcome are tiny, but perks of rank are really big. And that's a phase transition, just like in that glass of water. And that's when a group or a team or a company switches from this fluid, liquid, wildly innovative state to this solid, rigid, ice-like state where they shoot down new ideas. So that's why, as you say, it's important to understand and think through incentives. So, you know, we were talking about the military. I ended up about a week or a few weeks ago writing this piece for War on the Rocks. I kind of captured, since working on the book and doing the research from the book and having all these discussions with the military, you know, what are, you know, the three things the military can do right now to help with innovating faster and better. Um, so I captured you know, some of those elements that we were just talking about. But one of the items on the list is think through incentives. If you're rewarding, you're in the military and you're rewarding soldiers just on purely operational metrics, the number of how low they can get the failure rate, how high they can get the reproducibility rate, the number they can get done in a week, and that's what they get promoted on, well, that's what they're going to do. Not new ideas or new projects which will fail and won't be reproducible and will take a lot of time. You can't go to someone working on a new project or a new idea and say, well, <clears throat> you know, it's Monday. Uh, what's your idea rate today? 4.2. That's not bad. Uh, it's Tuesday. 
Oh, it's 3.6, your new idea rate. Well, you're really, you're really, you know, drifting down. Let's get that new idea rate going up. You just, you sound like an idiot. That's not how it works in coming up with new stuff. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you need to get right is to understand that your metrics, the things that you measure and the things that you reward are totally different, almost exactly the opposite in these two groups. And if you're not aware, that's a blind spot. If you're measuring everybody in operational metrics and reproducibility and quantity and quality, then you're not going to get new ideas. You're going to be shooting them down. No one's going to take the risk. And you may say that at the very senior levels. Oh, we want a really wildly innovative military. But if at the middle ranks and lower ranks, you're just rewarding everybody and incentivizing everybody based on reproducibility and quantity and quality metrics, standard operational metrics, you're not going to get that. Yeah, I thought it was the, the concept, especially stake versus status. It really crystallized a lot of thinking that I've seen over the last uh, decade or two. I know we're running a little bit out of time. I am curious a little bit of how the book came about. This is this is your first book, correct? That's right. Yeah. Did you do you have any idea that it was going to go on to be this mega bestseller recommended by Bill Gates, Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink? No, I you know, wrote it because I was curious and it was fascinating for me to learn about also uh, things that I thought I knew but turned out I didn't understand or things that I'd been told for a long time that were not really what happened, like you know, in the World War II history. And I just loved those stories. And I loved kind of being proved wrong that I, I thought I knew what happened in World War II, you know, a code breaking made a big difference or whatever. And actually that had absolutely nothing to do, you know, even stuff you read about in movies or popular histories had nothing to do with the truth of what really happened, which you can actually document and get the data and, you know, it's not very complicated once you have that. But I wrote it because I kept seeing, I was in the biomedical world and my father got sick with uh, cancer and I figured, well, I was in the field and I could do something about this because I have access to you know, the top scientists and hospitals. And uh, unfortunately, nothing I could do made any difference. And he died not long after he was uh, diagnosed. And then over the years, as our company grew, Everywhere I looked, there were these promising ideas buried in the basement of organizations, whether tiny startups or big companies, that weren't making their way out, that could have helped my father. And I kept wondering, well, why? It's not because any of these people are bad people. Everybody wants to go home to their loved ones and talk about how they're making a difference for something big and important in the world. So why is it that good teams will kill great ideas? And that kind of started me down this path that there's something structural rather than culture. You know, there was, uh, I was very glad to see, it was very funny. The, um, there was a company that won uh, Fast Company's number one most innovative company of the year award just recently came out. I just saw it like a week or two ago, a snap, a company that makes Snapchat, you know, the team there, the leadership there ended up calling me up and I ended up spending some time with them. And that was quite a while ago. And I, you know, talked about this point. Everybody talks about culture, but really the thing that can matter even more than that is structure. You know, you can stand at the top of an organization and tell everybody, hey, everybody innovate more, everybody innovate more, let's create this wildly innovative culture and let's put, you know, everybody uh, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and we'll have posters of innovation on the wall and we'll watch two-hour movies about brotherhood and wacky ideas. 
and it doesn't do much. Just like if you have a block of ice and you yell at the molecules in the block of ice, hey, everybody, loosen up a little bit. Well, that block of ice isn't going to melt. But a small change in temperature can get that job done. That's what's understanding the structure, the cultures, the patterns of behavior that you see on the surface. Structure is what's underneath that's driving those patterns of behaviors. It can be incentives. It can be how you manage time. It's how, how you create the systems and the structures that allow those patterns of behaviors. And so I was happy to see that the uh, guy who, uh, the CEO there who was interviewed for Fast Company said, you know, everybody talks about culture, but what it's really more important is creating the right structure. And I thought, yes, <laughs> number one Perfect. most innovative company in America. I'm curious, how, how long did it take you to write the book? And what was that process like? Did it take a while for you to, to be able to flesh out your writing since this was first time writing a book? Yeah. You know, I treated it like, you know, I'd done a lot of sports. And when you start off in any sport, you start off right at the bottom of your skill set. And then, you know, for me, I just find that really fun because, you know, outside of like kindergarten and elementary school, when do you get to learn at this incredibly rapid rate. You know, I did tennis and then I did martial arts and then I did um, triathlon. I did uh, ultimate Frisbee. In all those cases, I started from the biggest swimming. You have to learn endurance swimming. You And a lot of those things are about technique. And it's the same kind of mental spirit and attitude, which is I'm going to go in not knowing how to do this at all, but I'm going to create a system or a process where I'm going to figure out how to get better. And so I did that with writing, too. That during the day, I would focus on the research and then the content. And then in the evening, I would focus on the skill, on how to be better as a writer and better as a communicator. It took me a while to figure out how to develop a way to build up that skill, which was turned out, it was actually really fun because I was okay in the beginning, but got a lot better over time. And it was really because of that deliberate practice every evening where I would, you know, over time I found a, a, maybe two or three writers whose style really resonated with me and it'll be different for everybody. And I would just, I wouldn't read widely. I would just read a paragraph and I would spend an hour or two hours every evening just deconstructing a paragraph. These were, you know, Nabokov or Donald Hall or a few just really terrific, beautiful stylists. How did they, why did they choose to put the words in this order? Why did they choose to structure the sentence in this way? Why did they use a passive voice when everybody in all the textbooks say use an active voice? You know, how did they create this transition between this sentence and the next sentence? So I just divided or structured my day up into these different modules. And when F1 was research and reading and fleshing out the ideas. The other was developing the stories and the content. And then the third was practicing this weird skill set that nobody really teaches you uh, in this kind of strange way of just reading, you know, just completely trying to tear apart a paragraph every night. And are there any projects that you're working on now? Yeah, I'm deep in the cave on the next project. You have a video. I guess your audience can't see it, but this is my little cave. I love it. I love going into the cave and diving deep, deep, deep into another world. And I think you asked when I was writing the first book, did I have an idea it would do well or not? And the answer is I had absolutely no idea. I followed what was really curious and interesting for me and stories that I, I just could not 
believe or was just amazed and found fascinating personally. And then I went after things that seemed funny to me. And uh, anybody who has ever tried to communicate something funny knows that sometimes what you find funny, other people will find funny too. And sometimes not so much. (laughs) So, you know, my wife would hear me just like cracking up and I'd be like came across something or came up with something I thought was just, just hilarious, you know, really funny. You know, fortunately, I have some pretty honest friends and I would circulate some of the stuff. And yeah, some stuff came back was like, oh, yeah, I like that. And then some stuff was like, definitely not. Really, don't go there. (laughs) And so I, I appreciated that. But I wrote stuff mostly because it was curious for me or mostly because it was fun for me. And I had no idea if anybody would care or read it or find it interesting. I was pretty sure I could count on two readers. That was me and my mother. (laughs) <laughs> and outside of that, like even my wife got tired of hearing about it. So I couldn't really count on her. So it was nice when um, it launched and all these nice comments came back. But I, I had no way of knowing that or expecting that. It was a complete black box. And, and where can people keep up and follow along with what you're doing? Uh, you can go to my website. I have a blog there. And then I'm on uh, social media, Twitter a little bit and a lot more on uh, LinkedIn. And that my handles are just uh, my name. Well, Safi, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for your time and stay safe out there. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate you having me on and enjoyed the show. You know, I was going to ask you about how you became an F-35 fighter pilot because I'm kind of fascinated what's, what was your path there. We may be out of time, but I'm just curious and you can cut this later. I mean, I, I have the time. I was just trying to be respectful. Yeah, no, of I, have, time, I have another sorry. 10 minutes and I was kind of curious you know, it's not every day you talk to an F-35 fighter pilot. So, you know, you asked me how I became an author. How did you end up becoming an F-35 fighter pilot? Well, when I was five, my dad took me to an air show. And one thing we have in common is my father is a physicist. Oh, wow. And so he wanted to be a fighter pilot, but his eyes weren't good enough. And so he took me to an air show. I saw the Thunderbirds fly. And from that point on, I knew what I wanted to do. But as, as a kid, it's kind of tough. There's, you can't go and, and fly small fighters. Uh, so I kind of tabled that until high school. And I started flying a Cessna in high school and paying for that by working at McDonald's. And so I had to do a lot of, make a lot of McFlurries to afford an hour of flying. And from there, I went to the Air Force Academy, went to pilot training, and you fly the T6 Texan II. It's kind of a high-performance prop plane, almost like a P-51 Mustang uh, from World War II. And that was that was the time of my life. I, I didn't love school. I liked sports. I thought school was okay. I didn't, I didn't love it. But then when I was getting graded on flying, that something clicked. And that's, that's what I absolutely loved. And so from there, I got selected for T-38s, which are a supersonic jet trainer built or designed back in the 50s. These things are built in the 70s, way underpowered. But in order to go supersonic, they had to make it extremely aerodynamic. So it, it's good at going fast. It's terrible at going slow. So we flew that for six months, tough tough to land. And uh, at the end of that, got selected to fly F-16s and came out here to, to Luke Air Force Base and flew for nine months uh, learning how to fly the F-16. And from there, went to Korea, served there for a year and a half. Then went to Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina, learning how to uh, do the Wild Weasel mission. So taking out surface-to-air missiles, which was uh, which was great. Went to Afghanistan out of there, 
And then at the end of that assignment, got selected to fly the F-35. And so came here three years ago. And now I teach those new pilots how to fly the F-35. And there's no family models in the F-35. The F-16, we had a couple that were two-seaters. F-35, only one-seater. So we're doing a lot of simulators to uh, to get the new students ready to go on, on the F-35. How do you select? You, were, you, you mentioned... Now I'm turning the interview tables. You go, go for it. You mentioned you were selected to fly the F-16, and you were selected to fly the F-35, and now you're in in charge of training. So, what are the criteria you use in selecting who will be a top tier fighter pilot? It's uh, based on how you fly. So that's the the primary thing: how you fly and how much your flight commander thinks you have potential. So there's a little bit of fuzziness in that, but you're getting graded every flight, and then you have four check rides throughout undergraduate pilot training. So the first one is learning how to just fly a plane from point A to point B. The second is doing aerobatics in the jet. The third is learning how to fly instruments. And so that's, they actually sit you in the back seat and they put a cover over your area. So you can't see outside. It's almost like you're flying in a cloud. And so you have to fly around with that. And then the third and probably the most important phase is formation flying. So as fighter pilots, we we do a lot of formation flying. F-35, we actually fly really far apart. So it's not as important of a skill. But uh, you, you do that. And then at the end of the each phase, you, you get selected. And so our class started with 30, 30 pilots. And I remember our, the wing commander in charge of the base coming in on day one and giving us a pep talk. And then he told us to close our eyes and asked, how many of you guys want to be fighter pilots? And I raised my hand, and he said, all right, open your open your eyes. And all 30 people had their hand raised. And he said, good luck, and just walked out after that. So that was, that was our pep talk. And after the T6, that high-performance prop plane, seven of us got selected for the fighter track. And then uh, I think a few people washed out, and the rest of the people went and flew kind of Lear jets which uh, they go on to fly the the tankers and the transport planes. And then during T-38s, that supersonic jet trainer, they uh, narrow it down to three or four people that go on to fly fighters, and then the rest go on to fly other aircraft. Is there anything you would do differently in retrospect? I would have spent more time on learning to fly instruments. So instruments were very tough for me because it's just a fire hose effect. I, I it's it's so much work during that phase in your life that if you fall a little bit behind all these other people they've been dreaming of being fighter pilots since they were 5 years old too and so everybody is working their absolute hardest and the way we fly instruments is very similar to the way the civilian world flies instruments and so I would have learned that beforehand because I did get my private pilot license and that helped me out tremendously during the phase uh during the first two phases and then the third phase, I struggled a little bit, and that's where I could have done uh, more training on instrument flying. And then the, the last phase, formation, that's not something most civilians do, so that's probably something that's, that's a little outside the scope of learning in a, in a Cessna. But that, that's the one thing that I think I could have done better. But, I, but it really came together for me. In, in high school, I played a lot of sports, and I had, what looking back, a, a poor... Uh, mindset in that I thought it was all talent based, so I didn't work super hard at baseball. I thought it was oh, some people could just pitch well, others can't. So I didn't work as hard as I could have. 
at the Air Force Academy, I boxed and I took the lessons learned that you got to work hard to be good at something. And I boxed, I worked very hard at it. But where I went wrong was I worked hard at the things I was good at. And so I didn't work hard at my weaknesses. And that that showed in my boxing. And it finally took until pilot training to realize I have to be the hardest worker and I have to work on my weaknesses. And I finally got it figured out just in time. <laughs> so now that you're at the top, you're F-35 pilot. If there was anything else, if you weren't doing this job, What's like your number two job that you wish you could be doing? Uh, the podcast. Yeah, this is kind of my creative outlet. So the, mil- the military, very regimented. They've given me so much, and I'm extremely grateful to be part of the Air Force. But it is pretty rigid. So this is my chance to, to be creative and to do kind of my own, my own thing. So I, I really enjoy the podcast, and I'm just going to see where that goes and because that actually gives me that that same energy that I got in pilot training. Because you're learning. Yes, exactly. It's outside my comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, that's what that's what keeps me going. Is it, you know through many different careers, you know, as an academic scientist, then in the business world, and then in the startup world, and then in public company CEO world, and then this is mm-hmm. that at each transition. I'm learning like I'm a kid again and growing. And uh, it's like the beginning of a sport. It's frustrating, but then you see yourself getting better and that's like, it's pretty satisfying. Yeah, I, I found doing the research for this, your career has been so fascinating. Going, look like you're a superstar in the physics world to completely changing course to the business world, to changing course to the biotech world, and now to, to being authors. Yeah, there aren't that many physicist, business history, author <laughs> types who also meet with the military and talk about, you know, uh, leadership and innovation. So yeah, not too many, but the big fun thing has always been the learning for me is uh, when I make those transitions, the reason I w- will change is when the learning rate slows down mm-hmm. uh, and I want to, I'm thirsty to learn something new. So it so- sounds like it's similar. Yeah, re- reading your book, it had a lot of similarities with kind of my dad's point of view. It seems like physicists aren't affected by dogma very much. And reading Richard Feynman's book, the, these guys are kind of break things down to the smallest piece and don't worry about dogma and then build it the way it should. So it was really interesting to see your minds. It was almost like a physicist mindset and an economist mix those two together. That's funny because I'm doing a project now, which is a physicist take on very different way to think about economics that no one in economics has done in about 70 years. And so that is uh, it's kind of exactly that. It's a completely different dogma. Uh, and I'm having a ton of fun, ton of fun with it right now. So thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, you can help out by reviewing it on whatever platform you're listening to on. If you'd like to keep up with me, You can follow along on LinkedIn and Instagram at Justin Fighter Pilot. Today's episode was brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the Fighter Pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all their watches by going to bremont.com. Today's episode was edited by Trevor Kabler. 
Again, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you in two weeks.